From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way research is conducted. Many scientists have pivoted their focus to the virus, while others have been forced to work remotely or put experiments on hold. Having long been interested in sleep and dreaming, Dr. Janet Mullington's research looks at the many physiological and neurobehavioral effects of sleep deprivation. As she began the fifth year of a behavioral intervention study for sleep and blood pressure in March of 2020, Dr. Mullington had to adapt to new circumstances and their effects on subjects in the study. Dr. Janet Mullington is a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and the program director for the Clinical Research Center at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. So Dr. Mullington, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You're conducting a sleep study now. Just give us a little bit of background on this this study that is uh, currently being conducted. Our group looks at uh, the effects of sleep loss on uh, different physiological systems. We look at uh, the effects of insufficient sleep on stress and autonomic response systems. We're interested in the effects of acute total sleep deprivation. So acute sleep deprivation may be completely staying awake for 24 hours or 48 hours, or we've actually looked up to 88 hours of consistent wakefulness. Uh, people are actually pretty able to do this. Uh, sometimes people will have micro sleeps um, within that time, but we actually record the EEG and we're able to detect when people are falling asleep. Um, and we've quantified. Okay. So this is all done. This in is a all con- done. Yeah. It's all done That's in a right. controlled environment. We bring yeah. people into a laboratory mm-hmm. setting. Uh, we instrument the EEG um, and other physiological measures that we may be acquiring. We typically look also at hormones and inflammatory mediators. And we've seen that when you deprive people of sleep uh, acutely, that is a period of time where you don't allow them to sleep at all, there's kind of a a stress response, a physiological stress response. um, And this uh, is associated with an increase in blood pressure. So blood pressure goes up, and these inflammatory mediators also go up. So this is a kind of physiological and immune stress that is activated when people don't get enough sleep. So that can affect a lot of different body systems. But what you're looking at in the study that you're conducting now is um, hypertension or um, high blood pressure. And you actually were conducting this study when the stay-at-home order was instituted in Massachusetts. I want to talk about how your study was affected by the pandemic and the stay-at-home order, but um, could you just briefly kind of give us the details of the study? Sure. So the study that we were working on when research was shut down due to the pandemic was an an interventional study that was a behavioral intervention study. And it 
was designed to uh, test whether improving sleep through behavioral interventions would help to reduce blood pressure. Because as I said, we saw that um, blood pressure was increased, inflammation was increased in acute total sleep deprivation. After that research, we had gone on to do other studies that found that if you had three nights with only having half of your sleep in a row, which many of us go through, then you recover sleep and then you go back to that same situation of insufficient sleep for three nights, go back again. This repeated cycles of insufficient sleep followed even by a night of recovery sleep still led to this pattern of um, of increased blood pressure and some increased signs of inflammation. Okay, so that was the work that kind yeah. of led you to want to test this again and test right. it further. We thought, okay, there's this relationship, a regulatory relationship between sleep and autonomic function, sleep and blood pressure. Can we use improving sleep to improve blood pressure? And so that's that's a very simple concept that we tried to translate into an intervention. And uh, we have two behavioral treatments that we're testing now. We believe they both may be effective. Uh, they both involve sleep, very simple sleep hygiene principles. So obviously we don't want people to um, be exposed to blue light, which can suppress melatonin and be more alerting before sleep rather than allow you to calm down and get to sleep. So um, we, we control that. We control caffeine intake, so no caffeine after the morning. Um, and then we also control the regularity of your bed period. We know that it is helpful for your circadian rhythm to go to bed at the same time and get up at the same time. So having a consistent bedtime and wake time is also part of the behavioral interventions. And in one intervention, we give a bit more sleep, and in the other, we focus on stabilization. So um, these, we think, both may be effective in lowering blood pressure, and we're testing uh, to see which is better, if, if any of them is better. Um, so we have, uh, we, we're using what we call a waitlist control. So we have like three evaluations where we have people come in for about 30 hours and they um, they have beat to beat blood pressure they wear finger cuffs we actually do this through the fingers the digits so that we don't have an arm you know cuff inflating and potentially disrupting their sleep we record their EEG we take blood a couple of times a day we collect urine to uh, look at at sodium excretion and um, we also evaluate their cognitive performance and their um, mood and uh, well-being self-reported indices. So we, we do this three times. We have them first come in, do a, a kind of baseline adaptation day where we get our baseline measures. Then we have them come back again. And this allows us to have a second uh, baseline look at them. Um, because we're, we want to have two baselines, essentially because we think that it might be possible that just coming into a study has an effect on you. We know that right. there's placebo effects all over, and this gives us an additional control, but it also um, allows them to adapt to our conditions, our measurement, uh, the laboratory setting, so that they're more comfortable. 
on the second and third time they come. So the second time they come is really our more true baseline, if you will. And then they are randomized to one of those behavioral conditions I described. And they, they go home and they're um, keeping that intervention for eight weeks before coming back. And we reevaluate at that time to see if there's any decrease of change in the blood pressure. And all the way through this, from the first time we encounter them, we give them an actigraph, which is a wrist-worn device that helps us to measure their sleep-wake um, and activity levels and exposure. It actually allows us to monitor exposure to light as well. And um, we can use this in conjunction with an online sleep log that we give them. So they they write in their time to bed and their time to wake up and a number of other things. We ask them about their day throughout. And this lets us look at change through time. So we can look at that first period and see, is there any effect, any sort of Heisenberg effect here? You know, you come into a sleep study and all of a sudden you focus on your sleep. So this, between the first and, and second time we evaluate them, allows us to look at, you know, the effects of just coming into the study. And then, um, and then when they're randomized to con get condition, we can look also, again, keeping the actigraph and the sleep logs, um, look again how they adapt over time to their schedule, and then we evaluate when they come back um, with the more intensive physiological and cognitive testing. So you're in your Just fifth starting year our fifth of this year. study. That's right. So um, in our fourth year of this yeah. very big study, um, we had three participants who were already randomized to their uh, intervention. When all research was suspended, what we decided as a study team to do, if the study participants were willing, was to have them just continue. So in, in three participants, we asked them, okay, keep on your schedule, because they were already randomized to the intervention. And so um, one of them actually had a medical uh, family emergency, so actually had to stop. Um, but the other two kept their schedule, and now we're waiting to have them come back into the clinical research center to complete that study. So they will actually be case study uh, participants to see how the, uh, you know, the effect of keeping this now for an extra three months of uh, intervention or four months wow. of intervention might um, my look. But everything was stopped and uh, we have other people who are waiting to come in for visit two where they get randomized to condition and, and visit one. So we, we were stopped in mid-flight, if you will, and had like a dozen participants who were at different stages of, of this study. Um, so now we are going to restart and uh, bring them in as soon as we can to, to complete. When we spoke last week, you, you were talking about how your lab, the physical space, adapted, and there was a lot of kind of working together with different groups in the hospital. Could you tell us a little bit about just sort of the, the changes in the physical space that happened? You know, when COVID hit, there was a lot of rapid change and, and reallocation of, of resources in order to meet the needs of the of of the COVID patients. And the institution needed a place to uh, provide a safe space, if you will, for patients who had blood cancer, cancers who needed to, um, who thought that they might have COVID and needed to have a place to come and get screened for COVID. 
So they asked if we could, if they could borrow our clinical research center. And um, we still, of course, had some, some research protocols that were ongoing that were um, what we call life essential protocols that needed to continue during the pandemic. So we set up a satellite within the span of a week. We uh, turned our clinical research center into a a COVID safe space testing unit for, for these oncology patients. And then we took over another space in another building for a satellite clinical research center set up a lab, a wet lab there so that we could do the blood processing and do the other uh, research protocols that were life essential, undisturbed by uh, everything else that was going on in the hospital. I was participating in, in those changes in my role of clinical research center program director, but also this was impacting my own research, which you know had to go into suspension with um, the majority of other research that was going on at our institution. Right. So you're, you're the program director for the research center, and then you're also conducting your own studies. So kind of having to balance both of those things and those are kind of competing priorities. Well, they align pretty well. Um, Yes, because, uh, you know, the, the role in the clinical research center is really helping investigators, um, uh, access the resources they need to do their research. And a clinical research center is a, it's really a shared facility. So we have investigators from all around the institution, um, from different departments. We, we have, you know, close to a hundred investigators, um, early career investigators to more senior investigators who use the resources of the CRC. So it's a shared model. And it also, so it allows kind of a, um, a flexibility. It's a core model. It allows a flexibility uh, so that when you need the resources, they're there. You can, um, you know, you can tap into the resources that are there for a fee to your grant. And then uh, when you don't need those resources, you're not paying to support as many staff. So it's, it's, it's a good model. It works well. And it also provides the opportunity to be um, more efficient with space use. It also allows early career investigators to uh, come together and meet each other on the floor. It's a facility that allows sharing of certain equipment that cuts across areas. So just to give you an example of sleep, we have investigators in neurology who, who do sleep research, in psychiatry, in pulmonary medicine, in cardiology. Everybody sleeps and sleep affects a multitude of physiological systems that contribute to disease in different ways. That's really interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, a cardiologist who wants to study sleep doesn't have to set up their entire own sleep lab. They can just call you and book the time. That's great. So when I, when you were talking about that sharing the space and uh, people coming together on the floor, um, you know, now in the post COVID era, it's sort of, these ideas of sharing space and sharing equipment and um, that's all very tenuous and, you know, people are very reluctant to share space. So how does this new era we're living in, how is that affecting how you think about the research center? And as you restart your study, what kind of changes are you, are you putting in place? That's a a very 
a very good question. It's right now in the early stages. In our clinical research center, we have to plan carefully the scheduling of studies. We have to have adequate PPE and we need adequate space. So we had initially uh, started with, uh, you know, 150 square feet. If you if you think of uh, giving people, you know, kind of a six to 10 foot uh, spacing apart from one another, we were trying to plan for 150 square feet per per person. And um, this, this is very difficult uh, to conduct research when you're at, at a distance. Um, sometimes you have to, you know, just as in the clinical care situation, you have to get close to the, the participant in order to yeah. carry out the, the research measures. So we are using PPE and the uh, participants are using PPE. We're minimizing the amount of time that's spent face-to-face. It's actually uh, provided the opportunity for us to um, think about ways to do remote signing of informed consent. So anytime a participant uh, engages in a research project, uh, they have to have the study fully explained to them, and they need to sign a document um, that they are consenting to participate in research. And so this requires that the somebody who's qualified on the investigator team explains and spends the time uh, with that participant answering any questions that they have and making sure that they fully understand what they're committing to participate in. So um, this used to be done face-to-face for the whole thing. And now we are developing ways. So with our REDCap e-signature or the FDA now has an app that can be used for FDA trials. And we can even have some of the screening steps or some of the intervention steps can be done remotely. So we're as much as possible trying to think of what's essential to get close to the participant in order to do, and what can you do without being in the same proximity, without being within that six to 10 feet of that individual. Uh, what, can, what can you do through the technology that we now have available to us. So even telemedicine then, you know, if you're wanting to, to uh, do a history or, or interview the patient, you can, you can do a lot with the telemedicine techniques. There's still parts that can't be done. You still have to take somebody's blood pressure by getting close to them. You still have to get close to them for their, you know, temperature and vital signs, um, measuring the weight and so on. People are still, you know, doing that 30-hour sleep in the Not lab? Not now, but they will be, yes. And uh, so, for example, with, with my study, um, we will move to sign the informed consent uh, through this REDCap e-signature. And we will, um, we will explain the study. We'll have to move some pieces of it that we used to do. We'll reduce, instead of four visits, we'll try and accomplish the same thing with three visits. So we'll send people a blood pressure cuff to their home and we will send them their actograph to their home. You know, I was describing how, how we um, give people an actograph as soon as they come into the study and they, they keep it through those three visits of the study. Um, well, now we will, we will send it to them and they will uh, begin at home um, after we've done the informed consent and initial screening by remote methods, instead of doing their 
screening blood pressure in the CRC, we will have them do it at home with the remote blood pressure cuff that we send them and take the information in and then we'll verify it when they come in for their first overnight stay. So we're, we're thinking about ways that we can do more at home and less with direct face-to-face. -face. And all of the studies are doing this, finding ways that they can reduce the amount of up-close time, uh, but still um, using PPE, conduct safe uh, research visits. When did you think, okay, we might have to shut things down? What was going through your mind when you were making that decision? Was it uh, kind of like a group decision where you're talking to different people, different program directors? It became apparent uh, very quickly. The, uh, I think that in, in mid-March, things had really come to a head and it was quickly apparent that research was going to have to be suspended and that only uh, the uh, research that would be harmful to a participant to stop so that life essential kind of um, research would continue that occurred over a fairly short period of time um, I think just within the first couple of weeks of of March things changed very very rapidly um, and the hospital uh, very quickly set up a command central kind of emergency response team uh, that discussed and, and looked at the data that was coming through and actually had a whole network of hospital leadership discussing, okay, what should we do and how can we uh, gear up and um, make sure that the hospital is ready to take care of the patients. It was very rapid in, in transition. Did you even have a, a moment to stop and think or it was just, we just, things were moving so quickly, you just were going going with it? Well, I, I think that it's uh, fair to say that, that um, you know, there were a few days where we were wondering whether we could continue safely, uh, was there, were there things we can do? But if you recall, we were, people weren't even wearing masks routinely. And, the, and initially in March, uh, they were, the CDC wasn't recommending masks. Um, and now we're in a very, very different place. We understand a lot better uh, how, to, how to protect ourselves. So I think that it's, it's appropriate now that the research can proceed in, in uh, a careful and safe way of um, using PPE and, and making sure we have adequate space, not overcrowding any of the uh, space. So, you know, the research will start up more slowly. Um, we will be able to do less with, with the space we have uh, for a while, but, um, but I think it, it, it is time to begin again. Uh, but when it, when it first transpired, it was, it was a very rapid realization that everything had to stop. And there was some discussion for, for just a, you know, a couple of days on, on what, what exactly would be able to go on. And um, I think that the, the institutions were very supportive of one another and shared all, the, all of their protocols and information and discussed really in a collaborative way how to proceed. And I think did an, a superb job. Um, you know, the, the research has been suspended all across the country. Uh, the, the first priority has to be the safety of the patients, of course, in clinical research. And so I think the right decisions were made and were made very quickly, in fact. Now, though, to, to begin research again, we, um, 
we have to understand it'll take time. And I think that the sponsors are all very understanding and supportive uh, of this. Nobody wants to, um, to cause undue uh, risk. It's going to be challenging for a great many protocols to get caught up. And I think many protocols will not catch up to their targets. And I think there will have to be an understanding. I mean, this is uh, an unprecedented time uh, for society, but for research it is no exception. And um, we'll, we'll have to make the best and uh, do our best to uh, to get caught up, but we have to do it in a safe way. Dr. Mullington, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much, Brennan. It was really nice to have a chance to talk with you and um, good luck with your future endeavors. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.